We're returning now to an ongoing study uh, in the New Testament epistle that Paul wrote to the Philippian believers. So if you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The text that is before us at this point in our study begins at verse 17 through to the end of the chapter. And this morning, I have included the first verse of chapter 4 as well. In just a little while, we'll be reading that passage together. In the uh, halcyon days of my youth, I remember often escaping the turbulence of the 60s and the 70s by listening to the songs of Simon and Garfunkel. Do you remember them? My kids don't. How, one, how uh, could one ever forget uh, the lyrics of Like a Bridge Over Troubled Waters? I think that's just one of their best all times. It may not have been my most spiritual thought of the week, uh, but when I read uh, this portion of Philippians 3 that we'll look at today, I suddenly found myself singing a Simon and Garfunkel tune. And that one was entitled homeward bound. You can be glad I have this cold and I won't attempt to sing it, but the words go something like this. Homeward bound, I wish I was. Homeward bound, home where my thoughts escaping, home where my music's playing, home where my love is waiting silently for me. And it's really a ballad concerning life on the road as a traveling musician, where it's always good to get homeward bound. One of the verses says, tonight I'll sing my songs again. I'll play the game and pretend, but all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness in harmony. I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound. Home where my thoughts escaping, home where my music's playing, home where my love is waiting silently for me, silently for me. And the music fades silently for me. I'm homeward bound. Now, I'm absolutely confident that Philippians 3 was not the inspiration for Paul Simon when he wrote those lyrics But certainly, the Apostle Paul also had a longing for home. In fact, in many places, he often writes as one who is homesick. The irony of it is he's, he's homesick for a place he's never been, but a place he's very certain of going to. He's homeward bound. Even as he's bound in prison, he's homeward bound. Uh, Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. You'll see uh, what I'm talking about. Where Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has 
even to subject all things to himself. Paul, homeward bound in his thoughts and in his heart, even as he's bound to a Roman soldier. I want to ask the question right here at the beginning of the message this morning. I wonder if you have this homeward bound perspective on your present life and circumstance. You see, the apostle views the Christian life as a journey that's leading somewhere, and not just anywhere, but that is leading home, the true home of the soul. This certain and sure hope sustained him in prison, and now he wants the beleaguered, even the endangered saints at Philippi, to have this same heavenward, eternal perspective on life's everyday events. And we do well to remind ourselves often that this world is not our home. There's the old gospel chorus we used to sing, we really are just passing through. Not that the present days we are here are somehow unimportant. No, they're very important. But they're leading somewhere. We are just passing through. Uh, We learn to look at everything difficult and uncertain in our present situations. And on the authority of God's word, we ought to be able to say at any given moment, and really mean it, this too shall pass. For indeed, it will. If you're one of God's redeemed, if you're his child born from above through faith in Jesus Christ, you are homeward bound. And this is what Paul addresses to us on this day. Let us pray before we examine the scriptures here uh, more closely. Lord Jesus, you taught us to pray with words that say, Our Father who art in heaven. And how wonderful it is for us to know that heaven is where you are, but that heaven is also our destination. That you are even now preparing a place for us at the table and will come again to receive us unto yourself. Lord, help us to make that truth not merely some pleasant, uh, though distant thought, but rather let it be our present reality shaping all of our values and attitudes in this present world. We ask for the greater glory of Christ in his name. Amen. Now, what I'd like us to do is to read those homeward bound verses again, but in a slightly wider context. So come back to verse 17 of chapter 3, and uh, I'll read all the way through to chapter 4 and verse 1. Philippians 3 and verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction 
whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, while the great climax of the Christian life is the return of Jesus Christ and the transformation of our bodies, it is Paul's concern that on our journey home, we live as those, he says, whose citizenship is in heaven. Ironically, you will remember that the Apostle Paul, though a Jew, was also a bona fide citizen of Rome. In the course of his ministry, he even asserted the rights of that earthly citizenship. And as he writes this epistle, he finds himself subject to the government of which he is a citizen, even if it means he's a prisoner. As a follower of Christ, you see that he neither ignores the rights of Roman citizenship, nor does he take lightly the responsibilities of citizenship. He was a man, I am sure, who followed the injunction of his master, who said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And what we know is that Paul will do that even with his head. Rome will have his head. Paul wrote in Romans, the government does bear the sword. And so he submits to that. But Paul has learned since the day of his conversion, when he speaks to Jesus Christ, the voice from heaven on the Damascus road, and calls him Lord, that he must at all times now render the things that are Christ unto the Lordship of Christ. In fact, to Christ is his first and his foremost allegiance. As a citizen living in the temporal realm, uh, his foremost allegiance is superseded by his commitment to Jesus Christ. And so he's a citizen of Rome. He's living by the rules and paying his taxes, but at the same time, living his whole life in such a way that he demonstrates this higher allegiance to a heavenly kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus said is a kingdom, remember, not of this world. And because of that, the apostle has the confidence in Christ to say something as bold as we've just read in verse 17. Look at it again. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have 
in us. Well, that's a verse that makes me a little nervous, frankly. I uh, think I would more likely have to say in many instances, as a preacher and a pastor, folks, do as I say. Uh, Not necessarily as you sometimes see me do, but Paul's saying, follow my example. Because primarily, God's means of grace is to give us examples and patterns to follow. Paul is one of those. And then he says, and those who also walk according to the same pattern. Those who are living by the rules and the guidelines of a good citizenship that is in heaven. I want us to look a little bit at these two words he uses there in verse 17, example and pattern. The biblical term uh, for example, translated here, or pattern, is actually, of course, from the Greek root word, which is tupos, from which we derive the English word template, T-E-M-P-L-A-T-E. The engineers that are here this morning know what a template is. It's a a prototype. Perhaps a more homely illustration I remember from my childhood. I haven't seen too much of this lately. I'm sure it it still exists. But I I remember the days when some women used to make their own clothing, or at least try to. (laughs) Uh, They would purchase an envelope, sometimes at the 5 and 10. And on the front of that envelope would be a beautiful color picture of a lady there with this particular dress on, and inside of the envelope was what uh, I remember my mom calling the pattern. And uh, the pattern was, as I remember, sort of pinned to the fabric that was purchased, and then carefully cut out around the pattern, and then eventually that became what got sewn together. Sometimes the finished product actually looked like the dress in the picture on the front of the envelope. Now, in another place, the apostle once wrote to Timothy and said, I want you to be an example, a tupas, a pattern, a template to the believers. He's saying to the young pastor, part of your responsibility is to set an example around which the rest of the believers may be able to bring together a picture of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. Live like a citizen of heaven, for you are exactly that. Even as you are homeward bound, Paul would say, I'm your pattern. Follow the example of others who walk also like they really are citizens of heaven. Fact is, we uh, professing Christians, to many professing Christians, seem to often make it abundantly clear by their lives that they are citizens, uh, that they are citizens of the most affluent, hedonistic, narcissistic, self-absorbed nation in the world. Yes, I'm talking about the country that I love, the flag 
that I would gladly salute allegiance to, that I am pleased to be a citizen of. Nevertheless, the spirit of the age, I think, is prevalent in those terms. Hedonistic, given to pleasure. Narcissistic, all about me. Self-absorbed, we are as a nation and as a culture. And our neighbors, our co-workers, or even our unsafe family members, I wonder... Do they even get a clue that we are citizens as well of another country, another place, that we are heavenly citizens? Edgar Allan Guest, he was the prolific American poet who was once uh, most popular in the first half of the 20th century, became known as the people's poet. For those of you living in the wonderful state of Michigan, he is your poet laureate, in fact, of that state. Very popular in his day. And one of his most memorable works was entitled, I'd Rather See a Sermon. Let me share that with you. He wrote, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Don't anyone say amen now to that. Uh, I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see the good in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you and the high advice you give. But there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Paul says you have us as an example, as a pattern. I'll remind you that Paul was indeed an example. Those who followed in his footsteps, also a pattern for us to follow. But I'll also remind you of this. This is very important. The prototype, the first And perfect pattern and example is, of course, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says this, Follow my example. Same word, two paws, template, pattern. But then he adds this disclaimer. Follow my example, he says, as I follow Christ. Now, that's the only if I could put it this way, religious leader or example of another religious person that you would ever want to follow. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Christ, the prototype. Martin Luther often uh, preached to his congregation in Wittenberg that they must be, quote, Christ to their neighbor. And by that, he meant that their daily walk, uh, today we'd say the whole demeanor of life, would reflect that lovely nature 
and that beautiful character of Christ. Today, we might put it this way, the only Jesus that some people may ever encounter is the Jesus they see reflected in your life and in mine. And we might pause to ask the question, how important is this, this matter of being an example and a pattern? Well, the next two verses, I want you to see those, verses 18 and 19. Uh, This paints a very dreary, contrasting portrait of those who would apparently pretend to have some kind of affiliation with Christ, but are, Paul says, actually enemies of his cross. Now, some biblical scholars suggest that these may be a reference to the Judaizers that he mentioned back in verse 2 of this very chapter. Uh, They were those who would mitigate the power of the cross as uh, providing a sufficient salvation by wanting to establish a kind of legalism uh, for the Philippian believers to follow. Perhaps Paul was referring to them as enemies of the cross. Other commentators suggest that these may be those who wanted to throw off any kind of rules or morals at all for living the Christian life. So whatever may be the case, it is clear that Paul is not referring in these two verses to mere pagans, that is, to those who are not believers, but to those who uh, profess to be Christians, but whose lives were so profligate and immoral that in verse 19, the apostle makes it clear that they are not regenerated or genuine believers at all. In other words, he's saying there's those who say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, but by their example, the pattern of their life, they prove, Paul says, to not be true believers at all. Let's read verses 18 and 19 together there. He says, for many, and that, isn't that a sad statement? That there are many like this. And that was the first century. Uh, 2,000 years later, how many are there who name the name of Christ? For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now look what it says. Whose end is destruction. That's how we know they're not true believers. They're on a journey. They're homeward bound, but it's to hell they go, whose end is destruction. He further describes them, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Well, that lifestyle, my friends, is about as bad as it gets for anyone who dares to claim a relationship to Jesus. I've noted here that if you were to reverse the order of the four descriptive phrases you see there in verse 19, it tends to read like a progressive resume of any worldly citizen. 
anyone outside of the grace of God. One who could care less about something like eternal destiny. I want to do this for you. Let's reverse the order, starting with the last of the the, uh, four phrases and carry it uh, backward, and you'll see what I mean by a progression here. Uh, So if we take the reverse order, then I could say this. Number one, they have their minds set. They have a mindset. They have their mindset on earthly things. Their world is strictly a material world. Some of our young people here uh, think that sounds a little familiar. It's a little like the pop star Madonna, a material girl in a material world, but with a soul very much dead in trespasses and sins. They set their minds on the things of this earth. That's all they see. That's all they care about. There is no sense of being homeward bound to that place which we call the forever. I prefer, I think, the sentiment I saw uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I jotted it down, expressed by a bumper sticker I saw on the back of a, a rather beat-up old Chevrolet, and uh, the bumper sticker said this, Don't let my car fool you. My treasure is in heaven. <laughs> I might be putting that on one of my cars. I don't know. Don't let my car fool you. My treasure is in heaven. But these, he speaks of, have their minds set only on earthly things. Now, continuing the progression by going backwards. Number two, he said, whose glory, I mean, the things that they, they praise, the things they get excited about, Whose glory, Paul says, is in their shame. What a devastating statement about unbelievers in our day. Because what he's saying is this, that the very things that are shameful things are the things they glory in. Do you not see that reflected uh, on your television screen almost every day? I hope you're not tuned in too long and watching too much, especially the talk shows. Every kind of perversion is paraded before us and the audience cheers and the audience applauds. The very things that are shameful are the things that they glory in. The things that make headlines today are the shameful things that God will surely judge As worthy of hell. We have a culture that applauds the things that God calls an abomination. And so the prophecy of Scripture is coming true in these last days, in our day, when men will call evil good. And what do we know? We. uh, sometimes beleaguered and attacked Bible believers. They will also call the good an evil thing. Thirdly, again, in reverse 
form here, but a progressive statement of their condition. It says, whose God, small g, whose God, yes, everyone has a God, is their appetite, their desires. The things that that would drive them are God to them. In fact, I, I think it's interesting to note, if we take the words of the Apostle John in one of his brief letters, uh, he, he tells us that this God of appetite really is a trinity, just like we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Those whose God is their appetite, John would say, has a triune God as well. It is every lust of the flesh, every lust of the eyes, and thirdly, the boastful pride of life. That's today's religious pursuit of unbelievers. And then fourthly, what is the result of all of this? And I tell you on the authority of God's word, it's worse than a dead-end street. It's a dropping off into an eternal abyss. Paul says, whose end is destruction? Well, these same values they hold, these motives in our day may be a bit sanitized, not a whole lot. But they're dressed up at least to be everything cool about life in America and in the the jet-setting glitz of this world. But the heart of man, untouched by the grace of God, is a soul whose end will be terrible destruction. We reject that belief to our eternal peril. Our gospel says that should you find yourself in this condition, it's high time you began to apply for dual citizenship and pledge your first allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is the apostle's point exactly when we come to verses 20 and 21 again. And they're worthy of reading again. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you say that describes your heart? That that's what uh, somewhat motivates your days? That you're waiting in, in an eager expectation to see the Savior you say is your Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 21 This same Jesus who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, his resurrected body, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I'm glad that my Savior is an almighty and powerful God who is able to take all that I am in this corrupt body, which is the house of indwelling sin, and everything else untoward about this earthly existence in which we do groan, to know he has the power to subject all things. That means me too. To create a whole new body 
to be with him in glory forever. We eagerly wait for that. Or do we? Notice how these words about our future are written here in the present tense. I don't want you to miss this. Yes, he's talking about citizenship in heaven. Uh, He's talking about being homeward bound. He's talking about eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. But the language here is present tense. So that the words he gives about our future are written for the here and the now. He says our citizenship is now in heaven. It's not our citizenship one day in the sweet by and by will finally be in heaven. No, he's living now as a citizen of the kingdom of his Christ and his Lord. Our citizenship is present tense in heaven. We were sworn into citizenship the first day we believed in Christ. Your baptism as a new believer was the outward sign of an inward reality. Suddenly the world becomes more like a foreign country to you. You're like pilgrim in pilgrim's progress leaving behind a city of destruction and eagerly pursuing the celestial city. The reality of Christ and his eternal kingdom become the destination of a journey to your true home. The scriptures say elsewhere that those who really believe this, who have this hope in their hearts, are already in the here and now, in the business of, quote, purifying themselves, getting ready for their wedding day, the church which is the bride of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We can hardly wait. We live like a bride in waiting. We go about the daily responsibilities even the humdrum routines of life, but all the while, we mark the days of the calendar. Our wedding day approaches, and we're eagerly waiting. It's not a Simon and Garfunkel song, but a good old Southern gospel one I particularly like came to mind, and I jotted that one down, if you don't mind. It goes something like this. Is that wedding music I hear? The bride's adorned and ready to appear. And there's heavenly preparation for the wedding celebration. Is that wedding music I hear? Soon we'll rise to leave this land of sorrow for that ceremony in the air. The Father then will lead us through that holy land of splendor, have you made your preparation to go there? You see, true believers, biblically energized and enlightened, even on their worst hair days, are a people living in an attitude of great expectation. Have you forgotten Let me remind you, Jesus 
is coming again. You can say amen to that. Jesus is coming again. Yes, you can hardly wait. He'll give us new bodies. And those bodies, one of the greatest anticipations I have next to seeing Christ is I'll I'll experience my first day in eternity with a perfect waist, a, a new body, but best of all, a body free from any sinful desires, any workings of indwelling sin. And he'll take us to a new place filled with everlasting joys where we've already been told that his right hand will be pleasures forevermore. And because all of this is true, Paul's saying it ought to show on our countenance It ought to affect our attitudes. It ought to govern and direct our daily walk as long as we do know we are homeward bound. In other words, a cranky, critical, and contrary Christian is an oxymoron. Some say, oh, you don't want to get so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Listen, that's not our problem. Uh, We're not anywhere near in danger of becoming so heavenly minded that we would be of no earthly good. That's just a straw man. Quite the opposite. A true citizen of heaven like Paul has both feet firmly planted on this present earth with all of its dangers and all of its toils and all of its snares. But at the same time, even if it's in a prison, Paul would say, the light of heaven shines brighter and brighter in the not-so-distant future so that he can say, do as I do, Philippians, rejoice. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice evermore. Like the old saint lying on the bed and waiting for the hour who said, I'm not dying. I'm not dying. I'm just going home to live. Amen? Well, here's a doozy of a story for you, and I'll close. Prince Edward Island, Canada, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, reported the strange news of Charles Coughlin's homecoming. Seems he was a native of the island who, in 1895, started traveling and a few years later wound up at Galveston, Texas. He died there and was buried. On September the 8th, 1901, a terrific West Indian hurricane swept the Gulf of Mexico and caused that historic calamity of the Southwest known as the Galveston Flood. The wind blasted a terrific velocity, we are told, of 135 miles an hour and swept the raging waters over the city. The churning torrents washed out the cemetery where Charles Coughlin was buried. The water swept away the earth and the coffins which floated out into the gulf. Thirty-four years later, in 1935... A floating coffin drifted ashore 
at Prince Edward Island. Upon examination, they found a plate with the name of Charles Coughlin, the same man who had left his Prince Island home those long years ago. Wind and current had carried the coffin from the Gulf of Mexico off Galveston for thousands of miles all the way around into the Atlantic and up the coast to the Gulf of the St. Lawrence. An unusual way for a local boy to return home. Now I have to tell you, I'm not so sure I believe this story. It, uh, it, just, it just doesn't seem... Do they build coffins like that? I don't know. It seems too impossible. Do you know some people today feel that way about heaven? And they act that way about hell as if there is none. And what I know is I do believe in heaven by the authority of God's word. And I won't need a hurricane to blow my coffin up to heaven's gates. My real home. And I can tell you this as well. The Apostles' certain, sure, and blessed hope expresses itself in the affectionate words of chapter 4 and verse 1. Twice, did you see it? In the same sentence, he calls them beloved. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, then he says, in this way, Stand firm in the Lord, and again, my beloved. The agape love of the brethren, the family of God on earth, here we are. Our fellowship is meant to provide for us a foretaste of the glory that we will share together. And Paul says, in this way, stand firm together. Loving one another. Stand together. Holding one another up. Be ready together for the coming of the Lord. Because I think I hear wedding music. We are homeward bound even as we live out our heavenly citizenship. This coming week for the greater glory of Christ.